Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your questions, your observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. Got some good comments. I'm excited to uh, delve into some of the topics that the uh, viewers brought forth for me today. Excited. It's actually been a really fun February. I've enjoyed it. All right. Let's start with NHL time. When do we start to get worried about Alcaraz being injury prone? A little bit would be my answer to this question. It's funny because I'm pretty sure that somebody asked this before the year-end championships last year in a mailbag that I did. And I'm pretty sure my response was like, what are you talking about? He got injured once. Like, seriously, what is this? Comment. And maybe that person could just tell the future because there's been two additional injuries since, a severe hamstring tear, and now it seems like he he retore it, but it's grade one, so it's more of a strain. Uh, Grade one is when the muscle doesn't actually separate in any way. Uh, Grade two is when kind of half of it separates, and grade three is when it fully ruptures. That's your hamstring tears. We don't actually know which one Novak had at the Australian Open, but all of the evidence would suggest that it was grade two. Um, so for Alcaraz, look, if he, if he doesn't miss Indian Wells, this latest one doesn't even really, it's not even a blip on the radar. It doesn't even register on the Richter scale. So in, in that case, it would be fine. You know, back-to-back finals after coming back from injury. I don't know that he was in a a great position where he should have played Acapulco regardless. In fact, I would go as far as to say that he almost definitely should not have played Acapulco. So in that respect, I'm not really worried about this latest thing. I also want to say that we saw Carlos Alcaraz play a pretty rigorous 2022 season, which was his first full year on the tour, essentially, uh, healthy for 85% 85% of it, I would say. Like, he he, he had a, a pretty full season. So the fact that we've seen that is a good thing. I'm not that worried about Alcaraz being injury prone. But it's a little bit different than my answer at the end of last year when I said, not at all, what are you talking about? It's no longer at that level. Now it's okay. There's a little bit of concern, but it's, it's not major, all right? All right, next one is from Chris. Hi, Gil. I'm wondering about your take on top 100 ATP strokes that are technically deficient, but for one reason or another, largely fly under the radar more than perhaps they should for being technically suboptimal. I'm not talking about well-documented poor strokes, such as the pair forehand or the Zverev second serve. Rather, I'm curious as to your insight regarding poor strokes that are a little more subtle and rarely discussed. For example, Medvedev's volleys or Kyrgios's forehand return. I don't know that I 100% understand the question, but if the question is why do some pros have technical deficiencies when it is their job to play tennis, when they are professional tennis players, like how could they possibly have bad technique? If that's the question, that's an interesting question. One that I've given a lot of thought to. And here is how I would explain it. Think about the difference between MMA and boxing. A lot of uh, boxing people, they look at MMA fighters and they say, whoa, God, these guys have terrible 
defense. They they don't they have bad technique on their punching. They don't use their hands well. Basically, they're saying they're really poor in the boxing department. They don't look good. They're they're bad at it. Uh, th that they're trash. And why is that? Well, it's because they have a lot of other things to worry about. They have to split their time and their energy towards learning how to wrestle, towards learning jiu-jitsu, towards learning how to kick. And as a result, their boxing, which is all about the hands, it's not at quite as high a level. Tennis players are mixed martial artists. They're not boxers. You have a serve, you have a forehand, you have a backhand, you have your volleys, you have your drop shots. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, plus, you have uh, things athletically that are part of your game that you have to work on that are a big part of your success as a tennis player. Plus, you have the mental game, which you have to work on, and that is a big part of your success as a tennis player. So that is why when you have one area that is technically suboptimal, th that's where it's understandable because there are a million of other things that you have to worry about and that have made you get to this point. And that is why in the case of Daniil Medvedev, you can get to number one in the world and have some issues with your technique, such as your volleys. You were able to get to number one because you were so good in so many other areas. But your volleys weren't good because you probably didn't emphasize them from a young age. And you're probably still not emphasizing them to the fullest extent because there are other things you have to worry about. Think about the difference between a golfer, right? A golfer usually doesn't have an ugly swing, not on the PGA Tour. These guys all have really good swings, well, they're specialists. Of course they have good swings because that's all they have to focus on. And that is what makes them great. But Sarah Saribas Tormo doesn't have a good serve technically. Guess what? She is really good at a bunch of other things. So she became a top 50 player. And that was possible for her to do. It's not possible to be a top 50 boxer if you don't uh, have good technique when you're punching. You know, you need a good jab. You need a good hook. You need a good straight. It's not possible. But in MMA, it is possible. Maybe you're great at wrestling. You're great at jiu-jitsu. You're a fantastic grappler. You have tremendous cardio. Well, now you can be a good UFC fighter, a good MMA fighter, I should say, and you can have poor boxing. So that's that's what happens in tennis, where there are areas where some players are are not as good technically, because there's really a lot that you have to worry about here. So many different parts. It's very hard to be uh, great technically in every single area. Very hard. Doesn't matter what level you are. Next one is from Ron Robbie. Hi, Gil. Question about two players who are on the comeback trail. Dominic Team. Writing this comment with heavy heart, but are we at the point where it is safe to assume we're not getting prime team back? He is almost a full year into his comeback and doesn't seem to be making any ground, setting aside two weeks at the end of last season. Uh, two, have you seen any signs of improvement from Zverev so far? I watched his match with Lahechka in Dubai, and he seems to be moving much better. Still making a lot of errors, uh, but looked like a much better version of the one who lost to the same Lahechka a month and a half ago. Uh, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right, I want to talk about Dominic Team. It is time to talk about Dominic Team. I don't believe that I've discussed the former world number three U.S. Open champion of 2020 uh, all year. I don't think I've I've said a single word about him. It's been ugly. It's been really tough. Uh, in fact, the most gobsmacked I've been uh, with Team 
was uh, watching his match against Juan Pablo Varias, which uh, was in Buenos Aires. It was, uh, that was kind of the, the, the moment for me. And I think many of us have probably had those moment moments where, man, uh, my, my, my heart sunk in a big way because I, I didn't recognize the guy. I didn't at all. He's one in six on the season, by the way. That's team's win-loss record, one in six. Uh, just had an awful golden swing where he beat Alex Molchan. Molchan, by the way, is a, a mess himself. I, I, he he has zero confidence. Molchan's playing a really poor level. So team beat him, but then after that, he beat Juan Pablo. He lost to Juan Pablo Varias. He lost to Tiago Montero, and he lost to Christian Garin in uh, Santiago, Chile. That was just last night. So uh, what am I seeing from team? He is, right now, a defensive player. He is a grinder. There's no offense to his game. None. His forehand is pedestrian. Completely average. It's not a good forehand. It's not an above-average forehand. It's not a great forehand. It's not an elite forehand. Guys, it's hard to watch. It's just a meh forehand. That's what it is right now. Uh, in that match against Juan Pablo Varias, Varias was the player who was dictating. Varias was the player who was hitting bigger than Dominic Team on clay. Team was not hitting as big as his opponent. It's crazy. And it would be one thing if he was trying to play the way that he used to play and failing at it. Mistiming the ball, making a lot of errors, struggling with his footwork, struggling with his fitness, or getting tired. If all of those things were happening, it would be one thing. Dominic Team isn't even trying to be the guy who he used to be. He's literally become a defensive grinder. He is giving up ground. He is not potent offensively. His biggest weapon from the back of the court is his backhand down the line. Which is not really what he needs to be his biggest weapon from the back of the court. So, it's been tough to watch this year. It really has. And there's two things. First of all, I don't doubt that there are issues with, with team mentally. Because uh, he's gone backwards. This comment uh, mentions that there were some positive signs at the end of 2022 on the indoor hard courts. That is the case. He made a couple of semifinals indoors at the end of last year. The fact that he's come back from an offseason and he's looked this bad, it, it tells me that I, I do think that there are probably some issues on the practice court and in the gym. For him to go backwards here, it, it tells you that there's there's something going on. And the, the other thing is on the forehand side, what team continues to say is that it's just confidence, that it's just confidence that physically he's fine. And man, I don't know if I believe that either. I don't know if I believe him. Like really, you can't give us one big forehand over the course of a two set match because of confidence. There's really nothing physically in the wrist that is getting in the way of his ability to hit it as big and heavy as he needs to. Am I supposed to keep believing that? That is just his confidence because I'm, I'm struggling to believe it.
So, look, the question is, is it safe to assume we're not getting prime team back? Safe? I don't know how safe it is, but it's my assumption right now. It's my assumption because I, I'm not convinced that there's not something seriously wrong physically. I'm not convinced there's not something seriously wrong mentally. I think it's really, really bad right now. That's all I can say at, the, at, at this time. That's what, it, that's what it seems like to me. Everything is broken. All right, Zverev. Yeah, uh, I agree he's moving well. Physically, looks pretty good. It's taking some time for him to get confident on the forehand side. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there are more kind of sloppy, unforced errors than Zverev at his best should be uh, throwing in. Um, yeah, he, he seems to be getting better and better. Slow process. Second serve has been brutal, though. Uh, really brutal. Hold on, I gotta call. So, let me pull up the stat right now, because everyone should be aware of this. Pretty insane. Uh, if I go to the top 50 leaderboard for second serve points one, Alexander Zverev is, uh second worst on tour ahead of only Alexander Bublik, who's had an atrocious year, although he finally won a couple of matches uh, last week. Um, Zverev's winning 46.4% of his second serve points. So in the top 50, that is in 49th place. Bublik is in 50th. But yeah, I mean, you hear that number, 46.4. That is awful for second serve points. So that's really held him back. And again, it's a little bit it's pretty unfortunate to see that because, you know, that's kind of been an issue forever and it just remains an issue. I think uh, he could learn a lot from Marina Sabalenka. That's all I'll say. Could learn a lot from Sabalenka. You have a problem, go to the damn garage. Do something. Change it. Uh, Zverev has seemingly not been interested in doing that for five years now. And it's just the same thing. So that is still, that is still a thing with him. Question from Luki. How long do you think Iga Sviantek can be the number one WTA player? Her level was incredibly high in the Middle East. She lost the final, but was clearly sick. And now with slow, hard, and clay ahead, she can win a lot again. What about Krejcikova? She has a top three level today on the tour. I guess that's a question. After Iga and Sabalenka. Yeah, maybe. We got to see a little bit more. Um, she has no points to defend up until now, until Roland Garros. Because last year, uh, Krejcikova went out with the elbow injury after the Middle East. Didn't come back until Roland Garros. Took her a long time to get going. But then on the indoor hard courts, Ostrava, Tallinn, back-to-back uh, -back titles. That's when she really got it going. And then, man, last week, what was so interesting about this Middle Eastern swing for the women was... Sviantek in Doha put together one of the most dominant runs in the history of the WTA Tour. Five games lost. Um, was actually the least amount of games lost of all time in the WTA title run. No one's ever lost fewer games. Now, there was a withdrawal in there, and I don't know how to properly contextualize that historically to account for the withdrawal, uh, but... You know, 
it is what it sounds like. It's a stacked field. It's a WTA 1000. She did not have an easy path. Sviantek did. And she was still completely dominant. And then Krejcikova, the very next week, it's not one of the most dominant runs in terms of games lost in the history of the WTA Tour. It's one of the most impressive runs when it comes to just how hard it was from the uh, perspective of opponents faced. Quarterfinal, semifinal, final, she faces one, two, and three in the world. But even outside of that, uh, you look at the round of 16, it was the world number 15, Petra Kvitova. You look at the second round, and it was number eight, Dasha Kasakina. Are you kidding me? Eight, 15, two, three, one. That was her path in terms of ranking. So I, I did see a stat come from Opta Ace that Krejcikova was one of five players to ever beat one, two, and three on the way to a WTA title. But a couple of the other times it's been done, it doesn't really count because it was WTA finals. You have the round robin thing going on. You have much more opportunity to do that. So I I haven't dug into the other occasions where that has happened. Uh, but easy to say that for Barbara Krejcikova, it was one of the best runs that we've ever seen. So it was a pretty interesting Middle Eastern swing as far as Fiontek and Krejcikova are concerned. I've always felt like Krejcikova uh, has kind of been slept on ever since the Roland Garros title, to be completely honest. And a lot of weird things have gotten in the way of her kind of making that that next big statement, but I, I do think it's coming. I think she's excellent. I think she has the best return of serve on the tour, just as a shot. Now, Sviantek is going, and, and someone like Sviantek or Halep, uh, slightly better baseliners, better defenders than Krejcikova, and as a result, they are going to dominate the statistics of return points won and break percentage. But in terms of the return of serve as a shot, I think Krejcikova is the best in the world. That has made her very uh, well-suited to attack Sviantek and take away her time, take away her first strike on the ball, put her on the defense in her uh, on her service games, doing a really good job of that. And man, Krejcikova as, is as good a ball striker as there is on the WTA Tour. Next one is from Andrew Torres. What are your thoughts on these two pretty outstanding records? Which is more likely to be broken? Nadal in the top 10. He's been in the top 10 since 2005. And Djokovic, or, or Djokovic, weeks at number one. Novak, the record holder uh, for men and women, weeks at number one. Uh, even though I don't think the, the women's side should really be something that we should be focusing on. Anyway, uh, which is more likely to be broken? Can I say both, guys? Can I say both? I am totally out on the, oh, the record is never going to be broken thing. Unless something changes in a game that makes it so that these records are more indestructible than previously they were. Uh, let me give you an example. In baseball, steroids were being used by hitters. 
and it was helping hitters. Yes, yeah, some, some of the pitchers were on steroids, but it wasn't helping the pitchers as much. It was really helping the power hitters. And we saw Barry Bonds hit 70 home runs in a season. And we saw Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa hit 70 home runs in a, in the, in a season. All right? And then they banned steroids. And they started enforcing the, ill the illegality of performance-enhancing drugs, particularly anabolic steroids. And ever since that happened, players can't hit 70 home runs in a season anymore. 60 is awesome. What Aaron Judge did last year, that's like as good as it gets. No one's hitting 70 anymore. So you can look at like Bond's home runs. If you want to tell me, oh, no one's going to break those records, I'll listen to you. All right. But... Aside from that, aside from the sport literally changing and making it harder for, for records to be broken, I got news for you. They're all getting broken. All the records are being broken. The athletes are playing for longer. It's an absolute game changer. LeBron James just passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in, in points. Alex Ovechkin just passed Wayne Gretzky in goals. None of those records were supposed to be broken. When Kareem got it, when when Wayne the Great One got it, those records were, were not supposed to be broken ever. They got broken. Guys, wake up. We got to wake up here. The it, It's only getting better. It's getting better and better and better and better. And Nadal's records are going to be broken and Djokovic's records are going to be broken. There's no doubt about it. It's the way sports is going. Tom Brady, LeBron, Ovechkin, Phil Mickelson becoming the oldest to win a major. Tiger is still chugging. This is the new way. This is the new age. And it's only going to continue that direction. So both records will be broken. That is my take. 50 years. I give it 50 years, no more. All right, next one from Cayuse. Are you ready to admit to being wrong about Medvedev not getting back to the top echelon of the men's game again? I just wanted to give you a chance to walk your statement back now before he does it. Or are you going to stand by your assessment based on his performance late last year and at Australia this year? His ground stroke, stroke technique is just so sound. I was genuine. What? I was genuinely surprised you made that assessment considering he and Nadal basically went through similar challenges, injury and a new baby, but you are more willing to with the wait and see approach to Nadal, who is much older and not as consistent off the ground. All right, there are so many issues with this. Uh, first of all, I appreciate the comment because I, I, I like it when you guys say these things in the mailbag. I like it when you, when you come at me a little bit. Uh, first of all, let's go, let's go line by line here, all right? Are you ready to admit to be wrong about Medvedev not getting back to the top echelon? First of all, what's the top echelon? Because I predicted Daniil Medvedev to finish year-end number four before the year started. Four. So is that top echelon? I don't know. You tell me. What I did say is I don't think he'll ever be number one again. Okay. Next part is, would you like to walk that back? The answer is no. I would not like to walk that back. I think that there are issues with his game, his which come out against particular opponents, 
Most of them are at the, the very top. Most of them are supremely talented. Most of them are able to do things that 98% of the tour can't do. But I think there are certain issues that can be exploited with Daniil Medvedev's game and certain surfaces where those issues also come to a head. And I believe that will continue. I also don't think he's going to get much better. I think what we saw from Medvedev, the 2021 version, 2021 was an incredible year by Medvedev, uh, but even like the 2020 version, summer of 2019, which was even different, uh, throw that really aside. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see anything that surpasses that level uh, because of, uh, you know, I just don't see his his four-court game becoming something that gets drastically better. I don't think the power on his forehand is going to get drastically better. Uh, you can look at his age and his trajectory. You can look at his technique, a multitude of factors. Um, but I do think that he's going to have a lot of success and continue to be really, really good. All right? His ground stroke technique is just so sound. That's another line in this comment. That's like the one thing you can't praise him. What do you mean sound? His technique is noisy as hell, actually. Noisy, loud, rambunctious, wild, unorthodox, uncanny. Sound is like the last way I would describe his ground stroke technique. And now you're saying that I was hypocritical about him versus Nadal. Wait a second. I was wrong about Medvedev all of last year. I was wrong over and over and over and over again about Daniil Medvedev. All I kept saying was that Medvedev was going to win. He kept proving me wrong. What do you mean I was more willing to, to I was more understanding of, of Nadal when, when Nadal got injured? First of all, I gave Nadal a wait and see period of what, four months, three, four months, indoor hardcore season. I'm like, look, if he loses, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me for 2023. I still think that was the right approach. I still stand by that. Comes, comes back 2023. Things don't look much better. All right, now. Australian Open, things don't look much better. There's another injury. All right, now we can assess from there. But what? You, you think it's hypocritical that when Nadal lost to Tommy Paul at the Paris Masters that I was just like, yeah, it doesn't matter much versus Daniil Medvedev, who continuously, I said, he's going to be back. North American hardcore season, I said, he's going to be back. Indoor hardcore season, I said, don't worry about Medvedev. He's going to come back. And time and time again, I said that he was going to come back and be great again. And he kept proving me wrong. And you're saying that I was unfair to him? Ridiculous. All right. Again, I'm, I'm not offended at all, but I, I appreciate comments like that. But uh, nonsense. Nonsense. You can come at me. I'll just come back at you. That's all. All right, Pedro. Uh, I'll be attending Indian Wells soon. So I thought I'd ask something related to watching live tennis. Uh, what do you think stands out the most about watching live tennis versus on TV? The speed of the shots, the physicality, or something else? Well, I think certainly just the ability of the players comes across better live than it does on TV. But I actually think that that's true in almost any sport that you watch live. Any sport you watch live, it, it starts to look a little bit faster, a little bit more impressive, a little bit more real. Um, I think the big thing with tennis is... You realize what a unique product it truly is when you're there live. You realize that on television, it's just like any other sport. 
But when you're there live, you have a, a menu of options, different different genders, doubles and singles, and you can come in and out and you can get food and you can, it's such a customizable experience uh, that it, it makes for, in my opinion, a unbelievable day of enjoyment and socializing. Oh, the outdoors factor, very different from going inside an arena for a basketball game or a hockey game, sitting there for two and a half hours and then leaving. So I think Honestly, what comes across the most when watching with, with the live tennis experience is not how impressive the play is, which is, yes, more impressive than, than what it is on television. I think it's actually just how unique and fantastic the entire experience is of attending a tennis event. Next one is from Thankos. Medvedev has looked really strong these past couple weeks. As I write this, he's on a 10-match winning streak. We know he usually only turns on God mode after Wimbledon. Can he create better results for himself before the second hardcourt swing this season? I'm mostly talking about the Sunshine Double. Historically, he sucked there. Do you think he can change that? And how do you feel about his prospects on clay? Yeah, he has looked really good these last couple weeks. Look, uh, it's not he hasn't picked up like a wealth of incredible wins. Uh, he, he hasn't he hasn't pulled a Krejcikova, but he's looked awesome. I think the biggest thing has been his forehand, which has been really, really great for him offensively. And uh, by the way, just to kind of kind of uh, accent what I just said about his runs not being the the, the toughest. So Felix, who he beat twice, he's now six and zero against Felix. It's a really good matchup for him. Uh, because of the way I think he returns and defends against FAA. Uh, Sinner in the Rotterdam final, as I said, was great. Uh, great high-quality final. I don't think Sinner did anything to make him feel uncomfortable, though. I think he played right into Medvedev's sweet spot. Let's trade backhands from behind the baseline was kind of the way that match played out. Medvedev goes, all right, sounds good to me. You know, Murray in the Doha final. O'Connell in the quarterfinals of Doha did a lot of serve and volley and short slice and pushed him to three sets. Won the second set. was 7-5 in the third. So I don't think Medvedev has completely erased any of the concerns that I have been discussing with players like uh, Djokovic and Kyrgios and Tsitsipas who are doing things to him that are particularly uncomfortable. Um, but he's definitely built a level of confidence where he's executing his game at the highest level. Do I think that he can have a big sunshine double? Indian Wells is tough. Let's see what his forehand looks like um, at Indian Wells in Miami. Is he going to create offense consistently off of his forehand side? If he's going to do that, he's going to be golden. That's the question though there, all right? Because these last two events... The forehand has been really great for him. He's hitting it bigger. He's hitting it faster than his average. And he's not missing it much at all. He's been very consistent. It's been really good. So he's got to take that to those gritty Indian Wells hard courts in the thin desert air and control that forehand and also get it through the court. Tough task. I don't think, I don't think Indian Wells is ever going to be a place that's going to work for him. Miami, I think he's got a, a much better chance, even though it's pretty slow there as well. Pretty slow in Miami. Oh, it's also humid. 
Medvedev has had some trouble with the humidity. Miami is obviously uh, presents that challenge. From Road to Dawn, why has Stan been more successful in his comeback than team? Stan is much older, but looks uh, so much more confident in his game despite having inferior movement. He's consistently getting to the quarterfinals and putting wins together, while team has looks completely a shell of himself. Why do you think this is? I don't know that it's related at all. Like, I think it's apples to oranges. They're completely different in their circumstance. You know, Stan had double knee surgery. Stan is not moving that well these days at all, but uh, it was never really the biggest part of his game for Vavrinka. Like, movement was never what made him great. And as a result, he can still be pretty good without moving very well. You know, he's an excellent ball striker. He's going to hit huge from behind the baseline off of both wings. And that's what's going to make him stand. So the fact that that has been maintained for Vavrinka allows him to still be successful. What made teams successful? Well, I don't want to make it so simple and binary, but the guy had one of the greatest forehands I've ever seen in my life. And the right wrist injury since then, it, it it hasn't been the same. So I would I would look at that, and that's the major difference. I wouldn't compare the two. I wouldn't compare the two really. I, I know I just did, so maybe maybe the question actually got exactly the answer the comment was looking for. Maybe that's the case. Next one is from Mark LaBelle. Who is a member, by the way? I don't know if this is the first member comment I have answered, but I will take this time to remind you that you can hit the join button and become a member for $2 a month, and I appreciate it, and it supports the channel. So from Mark, uh, hey, Gil, the more I see great young players struggling to win their first major, the more I am amazed by what was achieved by Stan Wawrinka, three Grand Slams, beat Nadal and Djokovic. What is the difference between Stan and and the others? Great question. The answer might ruffle some feathers. The answer is that Stan is not is not better than the others. But Stan played the match of his life when it counted. Three times. Do I think that's lucky? No. I think that's something inside of Stan. That is part of Stan's, Stan's makeup. That is part of his mentality and his ability is when the chips were down and it's, hey, Stan, uh, this is the biggest match of your life. You know the sport that you have been playing every single day from the time you're five? Yeah, it was all for today. It was all for today. It was all for today. The next three hours, the next three hours are going to change your life. Go out there and do it. And Stan is one of the only players in tennis history uh, who has achieved this. But every time Stan found himself in that position, oh, he delivered. He delivered. He played his best. In fact, he played better. He played better than he had the ability to play week in and week out. Week in and week out, Stan Wawrinka was not a player who had the ability to beat Nadal or Djokovic. Check the head-to-heads, my friends. Check them. He didn't beat those guys. He wasn't good enough to beat those guys. No. Just, he was able to do it in a couple of major finals. And here is, if you don't believe me, and if you're a real numbers person, 
If you're a real numbers person, I know you'll believe me. If you're someone who is more about what it looks like and what it feels like, that's where you're like, Gil's talking crazy. Gil is saying that Stan isn't better than Tsitsipas. Is that what Gil is saying? Or, you know, let's go with retired players. It's just easier. Uh, Gil is saying that Stan isn't better than Ferrer. Gil is saying that Stan isn't better than Nishikori. That, that, that's wrong. That can't be right. That can't be right. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's not right because Stan, when he retires, will go in the hall of fame and he deserves to go in the hall of fame. Cause I think if you win three majors, you have to, you have to go in the hall of fame and those other guys, I don't think so. I don't think they quite got there. They're not hall of famers. They're less accomplished, but uh, tennis abstract did a 128 best players ranking. And the way he did it was he used ELO rating, uh, which rates every player's win and losses equally. Meaning it doesn't matter if it's Wimbledon or if it's a 250. If you beat Djokovic in the Wimbledon final or if you beat Djokovic in the first round of a 250, uh, ELO rating rates it the same. So it makes every match equal, all right? ELO rating and this system puts Stan Wawrinka as the 127th best player in tennis history, men and women combined. It ranked Nishikori 120 above Wawrinka. Now, keep in mind, this is not somebody's opinion. This is an algorithm that was developed by a very smart man in Jeff Sackman, who I'm very grateful for, for creating Tennis Abstract. Kane Shikori was above Stan Wawrinka. David Ferrer was way above Stan Wawrinka. He was 79, David Ferrer. Mats Wielander was way above Stan Wawrinka, number 50. Del Potro, 87, above Stan Wawrinka. Kvitova, Curry, uh, uh, Courier, uh, Ivanisevic, above Vavrinka. And that is because if you weight every single match equally, every match um, with Stan Vavrinka, his career is much less impressive than three majors. He way overachieved, way overachieved. In fact, let's compare him to somebody um, with one major title. Daniil Medvedev, who's only 27 years old right now and is probably going to uh, accomplish a lot more in his career. Uh, so Vavrinka ended up with... Let's just grab his career titles here. Um, Vavrinka... 16 career titles. Uh, Medvedev just passed him. Medvedev has 17 career titles. Medvedev has surpassed what Stan Wawrinka was ever able to do. Now, the perception is not going to be that. We value majors. Stan won three majors. Medvedev may or may not, but... What Vavrinka did here, uh, what separated him, like here's the here's the answer. Great young players, what separated them for Vavrinka? The difference is 
Vavrinka played better than he ever plays three times in his life. Better. And for every other tennis player on the planet, that's impossible. You you can't play better whenever you want. You're, you're usually, in a, a lot of the times, in the biggest matches of your life, you're going to play a little bit worse because of the pressure. But if you're good, then you're going to play the same. But not better. Uh, look at Vavrinka's head-to-heads against Djokovic and Nadal. Atrocious. Did, never beat him. Couldn't beat him. Major final, he could beat him. That's the difference. All right, one more here. And then we will wrap things up. I know I went super long on that question, but it's interesting. All right, uh, it's a long one too. This one's from Vishnu. Hi, Gil. Reasking from last week. Tried to shorten it. In the recent Steve Flink interview, you guys were discussing a point on how Novak is able to dominate and win against world number four and a top player like Tsitsipas in three straight sets. I feel that from that standpoint, if you look at some of the Grand Slam finals in recent years where Novak and Rafa dominated a lot and won against the current gen slash recent gen, this has been the case where the matches were not so close and not competitive. For example, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to skip all the examples, but it is true. There have been a lot of lopsided major finals with Nadal and Djokovic. Giving full credit to Rafa and Novak, and with all due respect to the current slash recent gen players, comparatively, would you call this a weaker slash less competitive era, or would you call this a competitive era? On a similar note, giving full credit to Roger, and with all due respect to the players of that generation, would you say that the period between 2004 and 2007, where Roger dominated a lot and won 11 slams, would you call that a weaker, less competitive era? Yeah, okay, I get this question all the time. So essentially, is this a weak era, or has this been a weak era last three years? Was Roger in a weak era? Look, here's my answer to the question. First of all, players can't control who they play. So I I despise it as a resume discreditor. To me, it is never a resume discreditor of who you were, were able to beat. Like, what do you want Roger to do? Instead of winning uh, 11 major titles out of like, what? Out of 14 or something, whatever that insane run was, uh, like, should he have won 13 of 14? Should he have won every single one? Like, what are we asking for here? All he can do is dominate. So if someone is going to dominate an era, of course we're going to look back at it, and it's going to be like, oh, that era was was weak, only one guy won. Yeah, of course. Uh, here is what I consider that era between 2004 and 2007. Normal era. Normal era. Not weak, not strong. Normal. Here is what I consider the Titipas Medvedev team uh, Zverev normal normal era normal era here's what I consider abnormal alright just just generational rare better than normal Nadal Djokovic Federer Murray that's what's not normal everything else is normal I don't think it's a weak era um, the way I choose to look at this, and I, I've said this many times, the way I choose to decipher, why is Nadal continuing to dominate Roland Garros finals? Why is Djokovic dominating Stefano Tsitsipas in an Australian Open final? 
when the age difference is, is so vast. The reason is because Novak Djokovic has fended off decline and Stefanos Tsitsipas was never as good as Novak and will never be as good as Novak. He is not Novak. Does that make it a weak era? No. No. Does that make Tsitsipas weak? No. Tsitsipas is just normal. Djokovic is strong. That's the difference. And I know we like to make it both. We like to say, well, it must be both. It doesn't need to be both. It does not need to be both. Tsitsipas is is excellent. Uh, he, he is. Medvedev, Zverev, they're all great. But none of them, none of them were ever, are ever, will be ever at the level of Nadal or Federer or Djokovic or even Murray. None of them are that. And by the way, I don't care if they win four majors. They're still not at the level of Murray. None of them. Murray was better. Um, you know, that that's why, do I think there was a strong era? Yes. But I don't see a weak era here. I don't. And that's not to say it's impossible. That's not to say that it's it's possible that there can be a weak era. I believe there can be a weak era. That is possible. But I have not seen it. I have not seen it. You know, I think a lot of the guys that Federer beat were really good players. Similar players to Tsitsipas and Medvedev and, and Zverev. I think Hewitt and Roddick and, I don't know, to a lesser extent, maybe uh, Asafin. I think those guys were very similar to Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev. Like, these are really great players, not generational all-time greats. That's a, that's normal. That's normal, right? That's how I look at it. I hope that makes sense. I hope I answered the question. Good one. All right. Um, of course, many comments that were great that I didn't get to. Feel free to ask questions for a second time so that they are answered in future mailbags. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.